I want to start by saying when I was first going to, started going to church, I don't know if any of you have heard this, but I was very skeptical of Christianity, but I was intrigued. I had kind of gotten into Buddhism. I was into spirituality, but I wanted to go deeper and do it in community. And there's this cool church in New York. And I remember when I started going, I, I remember people saying, and this happened when I went to divinity school too, people would sometimes say around Christmas, like, well, you know, everyone makes such a big deal of Christmas, but about Christmas, but Easter is like the real most important Christian holiday. Christmas is just, and it's like, and I, I was sort of intrigued by that because like, ooh, some kind of insider knowledge, like everyone thinks Christmas is not a big deal. But uh, Easter, this thing that in my family growing up was just about candy and bunnies, was like actually the big, that's like actually important. And I kind of get what they're saying. They're kind of resisting the culture, the pop culturalization, the sort of shallowing of Christmas into just being about shopping and, and eating. But, but I think that there's something, there was something kind of snooty and elitist and, and insider. Like often when you have any kind of insider group, they like to be like, well, people out there don't really know um, what's going on. But also, I think it's wrong theologically. It's sort of like, um, you know, and, and, and this book, this reading was from Luke today and, and also the book of Matthew. Um, if we didn't have those stories about how Jesus came into the world, those people might be right. Because it is true that, um, like, a lot of the New Testament, the earlier books, they're, they're called books, they were actually letters written by Paul, who was spreading Christianity all around. He doesn't talk about how Jesus was born. He doesn't mention the story of birth. He doesn't mention Mary and Joseph um, going to Egypt and the census and, um, and the manger, you know, the feeding trough where Jesus is born. None of that was necessarily important. For him, it was important that Christ was crucified and resurrected, and that's all you needed. So in a sense, if that's all we had, those people would be right that Easter is the center. That's like the, the focal point. But we also have these other documents that, that were written down a little later of early Christians who were like, no, we got to talk about the beginnings. We got to talk about how this came in. And then the theological concept that comes out of that is called incarnation. And I just think it's BS to say that um, incarnation is less important than resurrection, that, that incarnation is in some ways what really sets Christianity apart from even the other monotheistic faiths. Um, in, in my Jewish friends tease me like, oh, you think God, you know, was in Jesus, you're, a, you're an idolater. Because um, that's the idea. Like if you, if you in, in Islam, it's the same thing. If you, if you locate, if you think God became human, that's idolatry. That's not really God. So, so I'm interested in exploring that. Like I think um, that's wrong. And I think that, uh, that this idea of incarnation is actually what draws me what I think makes Christianity a religion that I can get behind, I can get down with. Um, so incarnation, what's another way of saying incarnation? Can someone like, what, what is that? Like, you, we don't go about our daily lives like, um, yo, what's up? What do you think about incarnation? Like, it, that's part of, what, part of what I wanna get to is like, I think that word itself has become the opposite of what it's supposed to do, which is allow us to see God in the world, in matter, in things. It's this weird abstraction. So what's another, what would be another way of saying incarnation, do you think? 
Embodiment. That's good. Embodiment. <laughs> flesh, in, yeah, in flesh, in fleshed, in fleshment, maybe. That's weird, right? When I started thinking about these terms, it was the same problem I had with incarnation. Incarnation, embodiment, and fleshment. It's like, what does that mean to say God is embodied and fleshed, incarnate? And, you know, I started, okay, God has a body. What does that mean? Um, why is that important? And I was on YouTube, and I was just, um, something popped up. Oh, that's so weird that I said popped up, because... Did you know that there's this doctor in California? She's called, oh gosh, I'm forgetting her name. Um, but she is called like the, the pimple popper, like the expert pimple popper. And her, her, her videos on YouTube have an insane number of views, like millions and millions of views. And they're literally just pictures of people's blackheads, whiteheads. Sir Anne just said that's awesome, and some people really love this. And I was thinking, is that what it is? Like that with it? Like God has pimple? Like there's like, you know, like it didn't get me very far. But but um, and I don't really know what the point of that is, other than to like like trying to grasp what does it mean that God has flesh, like zits, like. Um, and I think when it started to make sense to me more, was was how about this? Thinking that maybe the point. Um, is that God has a face. Doctrine of incarnation means God has a face. So, let that just hang there. Uh, the, uh, the, back to the, the Christmas, not that important. One of, the, one of the remarkable things about Christmas in its uh, secular guise, like how it's... Um, something that uh, is sort of out there and jingles on the radio and, and TV and movies. One remarkable thing that it's retained um, is the idea of a Christmas miracle. Like even movies that have nothing to do with Jesus or the manger or, or, or even God, like often they still like have a Christmas miracle happen. You know, think of Miracle on 34th Street where like the miracle is like, whoa, maybe he really is Santa Claus. You know, at the end, but like that somehow changes everything. That brings magic back into people's lives. Or I was thinking, does Home Alone have a Christmas miracle? His family come home. Yeah, they're reunited. <laughs> Can thwart two like hard seasoned criminals. Yeah, <laughs> and then he survives. Um, and then what else? There's like you know, like uh, it's a wonderful life. He's like he has this. He's kind of led. There's no Jesus. There's an angel. But the, the Christmas miracle is he sees his his life suddenly he stopped taking it for granted and has this new appreciation. So this, even in its sort of diluted form, we, we still hold on to this idea that this is a time for miracles. The problem is that miracles are another word that has been totally misused and abused, and it's not the fault of science, which teaches us, oh, miracles can't happen, it's all according to the laws of stuff hitting other stuff. I mean, that's part of it, but I think the bigger like, threat to the idea of miracle is religious people and what they've what they've kind of done with that word. I mean, um, when I think of miracle, I, the first, one of the thing, first things that pops into my mind is like Jesus toast, you know, like Jesus appearing on a piece of to toast. That's, and that's like miraculous. You know, something that like, vi like breaks through nature in this way that couldn't happen or like, um, I mean, there are a lot of examples of this. There's Jesus non bread. Um, there's Jesus, mold behind the refrigerator, you know, people seeing 
the face of Jesus in nature. Or, 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 or that's how we tend to think of it. And, th and then the problem with that is that what the heck does that have to do with our lives if we don't happen to see something like that? Um, it turns out, does anyone know why people see the face of Jesus in mold behind the refrigerator or toast? I don't have a theory. What? They're looking for it, exactly. But their brains are looking for it. They've done scientific research and it turns out there's this phenomenon called face pareidolia, I think. Yeah, face pareidolia, where we're hardwired, our brains are hardwired to, to notice faces. And this is something us who have babies are probably thinking about, like, when is he gonna recognize my face? And that's something we, we've freaked out about. Like, does he, does he see our face? Um, it's, it's this thing that we're, we're hardwired because we're social animals, we want to, See, see a face, so even before they can recognize other shapes, babies can recognize faces. It's like we want to see a face so badly, we're, we're, it's in the deepest fibers of how we were made um, that we see them in random splotches that come close enough to a face, it becomes a face to us. In the chaos, we see a face. Um, so you could say it's brain, but I think there's something deeper that Lydia was probably alluding to, that we also want to see in the random patterns, the random occurrences of our lives, the random, um, you know, just walking down the street, there's pavement and cars. We want to see in there something that is not just stuff, that is not just toast, that is something uh, with meaning, with order, and not just order, but a regard cast on us, a regard that sees us. Um, something deep within, even, though we're, even if we're not conscious, I think wants that, needs that. There's this theologian I love uh, named Nicholas of Cusa, Cusa, Nicholas Cusanus is another way of saying it, 14th century. He had this idea of God, this image of God that we're supposed to help us imagine God. And it was drawn from mythology. There's a, a statue, a mythical statue that is a, is a face, and it's looking at you. And as you move, it stays in the same place. But no matter where you go, its eyes are always looking at you, almost like a, a hologram that shifts or something. It's like it could be a painting or a statue. It sounds a little creepy, you know, but um, he said that's, that's how God is. We move, and wherever we go in relation to us, and, and, and even if say it, we're in the middle of this room right here, we could all look at it and each of us would perceive that it was looking at us. That's how God is. God's gaze is always upon us. Um, so we're to imagine, we're to imagine um, God's regard always upon us, which sounds, it could sound a little creepy like surveillance, right? Um, but that's not how he meant it. Um, so I had a miniature Christmas miracle of my own uh, just last week that uh, actually did involve toast. Um, and so I had been, um, lots been going on in my life. I've been kind of crazy, distracted, stressed. And um, I, this morning I was like, I had a lot of stuff to do, had work to do, but I had heard about this poem, this poet, on YouTube <laughs> that a friend told me about. And I decided this is not productive, this is not really serving a purpose, but I'm gonna watch this. 
and I did, and it was a poem that um, blew me away. And I'm gonna, we'll link to it on the Root Branch website, I'm not gonna read it. But it was um, a poem by a religious poet who I knew was sort of um, identified as a Gnostic. And a Gnost Gnosticism is this kind of branch of early Christianity that um, I've been interested in debunking because I think it's wrong in a lot of ways. And it, and it has this kind of hipster coolness, like the Da Vinci Code, has anyone seen the Da Vinci Code? And it's like, oh, like Christianity is all wrong, but the Gnostics had it right. And so, so there's something kind of, kind of alluring about it, but um, so this guy was kind of interested in Gnosticism, but I, when I was first getting into Christianity, I was interested in it. Anyways, I, I read it and I was blown away. And um, I had started a uh, grilled cheese sandwich. Um, and kind of still thinking about this poem, I forgot halfway through that I had started it. So all of a sudden I snapped out of my reverie and, and looked and of course it was smoking and it was, half of it was burned. Um, and one thing my wife Allison might tell you is that I burn um, toast quite often. That's not, that's not the miraculous, that's not the unusual part. But the miraculous part is that usually she'll hear me from the other room and, I, and, I, and I'm saying, ah, damn it, like I burned it. Like I, I, we had this toaster before that would burn toast constantly so I made us get a different toaster, a, a toaster oven um, and that still burns to the toast. And every time, every time it happens, and I never learn, and every time it happens, I like curse the toasters, and I curse, and I'm, and I'm frustrated, and, and then I'm like scraping the toast. This time, I, the miracle was that I looked at it and I was like, huh. And I didn't feel any of that frustration. I didn't feel any of that angst about the toast. I, I sort of just started scraping it off I was like, this is still gonna be a really delicious grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> and then I put it on a plate and I um, was putting it over the table and as I was about to set it down, the whole thing slid off onto the floor. And like the top piece of bread, you know, it was like, like, like the whole thing was kind of like. Um, and instead of being upset, I, was, I picked it up and like five second rule, like it's, it's gonna be fine. And, but as this was all happening, I was like, kind of looking at myself, almost from outside, I was like, why am I so, why is none of this, why is this also okay? And it was the most delicious grilled cheese sandwich. It's actually a croque monsieur, a little pretentious um, grilled cheese sandwich with some ham. Um, but I hadn't tasted one that good in a while. I think that's the kind of, that's closer to what I'm talking about when I talk about a Christmas miracle, is um, when can we see in the everyday, um, when can we experience joy, gratitude, and peacefulness in the everyday, in the burnt, burnt toast? Um, so to Mary real quickly. Um, The poem that, uh, that Liz read is referring, she talks about the, a vase on a lectern and the lily. She's talking about how Mary is often depicted in paintings. Uh, she's often depicted with a lily in a room and Gabriel appears. And just like um, in the story that we heard, um, she's terrified at first. She experiences fear. There's something 
breaking in from the outside, from outside of what she expects or knows or, or, or um, imagines possible. And her first reaction is fear. And this is repeated um, when the shepherds, the angel appears to the shepherds, they're very afraid that happens. And it's also um, repeated interestingly when Mary and Joseph go take Jesus when he's like 12 to Jerusalem and he's gone. They can't find him. They're, they're freaked out. Where did our son go? Um, something about Jesus, about God coming into the world, coming into our lives is frightening. It's, all, it's, it's usually associated with, um, with quaking and, and discomfort. Um, when... Um, when Liz read that, I was struck by um, how there's this moment that we probably miss, usually. So this moment we miss probably every day, um, probably way more often than we're aware of, where we have a choice whether to let what's outside uncomfortable, terrifying in or not. And it's not just when big, scary life events happen. It's, there's something... Um, always with us, always around us, always inside, outside, um, that we want to keep outside, we don't want to let in. Um, I think what the Jesus story, what Christmas is about, is letting something strange, different outside in. Um, hospitality, seeing God as a guest that needs to be let in. Um, God is called a guest in the poem Liz read. And um, that's what's so strange about the Christian idea of God, is God is not the powerful one, um, I got you, it's all good. God is the one who is weird and strange and different. And what's weird and strange and different about him is how normal and familiar he is. I think we all want a God who is totally going to take care of everything. This God is not. This God comes as a baby. This God comes not as one who's, I got it, it's all good. This God comes as one who needs us to care for God. And that's a really strange radical idea that, that God's power and might to create all of this is connected somehow radically to vulnerability and the need to be taken care of. Um, that this God we need to welcome in, this sacredness, this sacred dimension, this reality that's breaking in, that seems outside, is the near at hand, the close by, what's right in front of us that needs care. It's the same God. So what I want to suggest is that God having a face, what would it be like if we looked at whatever's kind of before us, whether it's a human or, or, um, or nature or just what's coming in from the outside as being the face of God, as being the face of God that is at once um, uh, disturbing, troubling, because we can't control it. It's another face that is coming at us that is outside, but is also one that we need to respond to with love and care like a, like a baby. Um, sometimes when I'm taking care of Hans late at night, uh, or I guess any time, but 
for some reason, it happens more at night for some reason. I, I, he like, will look at me, not for very long, but do a little glance, and I have this strange thought that, like thinking, who is, who is looking at me? Who is that in there? Because the baby's like, there's not much there yet, there, there's this face. And I imagine, strangely, this, this is, I don't do this stuff I'm talking about. I don't, when I'm you know, at a restaurant and I'm looking at a wait, waitress or waiter, I don't imagine God God's face. <laughs> I want to. Um, but when I look at Hans's face, I sometimes imagine that God is looking at me. And I don't know what that means totally, but I, but I think it's something like this, that it's something like um, a mystery I can't penetrate um, that demands, that is asking me, how are you going to care for me? Are you going to take care of me? Not in a judging or, or, or like taking notes kind of way, but a kind of, I need I need to be taken care of. Um, and I think part of the reason I've been able to see that more and more is because when Hans was born, it was the scariest thing my, that I'd ever experienced. Because he was born, uh, for those of you who don't know, he, he suffered a lack of oxygen, a, an injury. It didn't go the way we wanted to. It was outside of anything we had hoped or expected for how this would go. It was terrifying. Um, but we made a little pact, and we just kind of stumbled into it a little bit. Um, we somehow knew that unless we faced this terrible, terrible reality that was facing us, unless we um, let it in, even though it was much more tempting for me at first to kind of turn away, um, that love would not be flowing through, that, um, that letting this terrifying reality in is what's allowed me, allowed us to be cared for, to be, to be carried by this new love that's happening through Hans. Um, so yeah, I, I, want, I want us all to think a little bit about, um, as we're going home to our families, um, I'm, I'm probably the only one here, right, that, uh, uh, that, exp that for whom it's hard to sometimes see my parents as um, something I respond to with joy and gratitude and, uh, and, and, um, and the face of God. <laughs> like, when, I, when I'm back, I sometimes transport back to my teenage self, where my parents are just an outside annoyance, um, and get them away. And... Um, or whether or not you're, you're spending time with parents, just whatever you're going to do, like what does it mean to courageously let in what is strange? Okay, amen. <laughs>